0: So God makes change, and uh, we can probably tell stories of change in all of our lives, but uh, I want to tell you the story of one guy who experienced a lot of change in his life. Uh, His name is Justin Wren, and he wrote an article telling his own personal faith story uh, entitled How I Went from Fighting in a Cage to Living in a Hut." little bit of a change in his life he was an all-american wrestler in college so his transition to mixed martial arts uh, competitions uh, went rather smoothly had a lot of success but as his success was growing so was so were his addictions addictions to alcohol and cocaine and other narcotics and uh, he hit rock bottom when he was kicked off one of the best MMA teams in the country because of his drug use Everybody pretty much caved up on him except for one guy who was a Christian and kept calling him every day to encourage him and kept inviting him to a men's retreat. And he, in his mind, he was thinking, I don't think I want to go to a men's retreat, a bunch of kumbaya type something. And, but this guy was relentless and, and he felt hopeless. So he went to the retreat and what he discovered there were some guys who were raw and were real and uh, he also discovered a relationship with Christ. And when he began his relationship with Christ, he went, he went all in. He started uh, volunteering in uh, prisons and other ministries, just saying any, anybody who would let him tell his story of coming to Christ. He wanted to tell his story. And so um, his life was, uh, was, was changing, and he was growing in his relationship with God. And he had a prayer. He had a prayer that he prayed because he was all in. He said, God, I'm yours uh, is there anything you want me to do? I want your will in my life, not mine. And uh, shortly after that, he started having this vision. He had this vision of ministering in the jungle. And, and the Lord impressed a passage of Scripture he had learned uh, from Isaiah. It's a passage of Scripture that is about God's heart for the poor and the oppressed. And he told his mentor, a guy who was discipling him, uh, about this this vision and about this passage of scripture and the the mentor says well it just so happens i'm taking a group of people a month from now into the jungles and so maybe this is what the vision is and he said we're going to be going to the mabuti tribe which are our pygmies we're going to go into the farthest reaches we're going to find the the tribe that is as far away from civilization as possible civilization as we know it and we're going to f- discover their needs and see how we can make plans to minister to them. So he went and he saw firsthand the conditions that they were living in. It was way worse than what his vision was or what he had been prepared for. This particular tribe was living in slavery to another tribe. And they were living in slavery because they owned no land. Along the way, they had had their land taken away from them. And without land, they had nothing uh, in, that, in that jungle, uh, in the Congo. And so they, um, they were living under slavery, under these other people, in terrible, terrible conditions. And, and so when he came back to the States, he it, 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 it couldn't shake this, this feeling that he had to do something about it. He went back to his mentor. He said, I've got to do something about it. So his mentor connected him with a ministry, a school in the Congo that is particularly trying to help this particular group of people. And so he decided before he really could help them, he had to know them. And they had to know him, so he went and lived with them for a year. And he lived in the same uh, twig and leaf hut that they lived in, uh, the same kind of hut that they lived in. He ate their food. He suffered from their same diseases. Uh, he, almost, he had a, a, a bout of malaria that actually almost killed him. But he said that no matter how things got tough there, he felt more at home in that village than he ever had felt in the gym. Before long... Uh, he was adopted into this pygmy tribe and they gave him a name Efiosa Mabuti Mangbo so Mabuti Mangbo means the big pygmy so he's like 6'3 and the average pygmy male is 4'7 alright so you can see why they would do that but the Efiosa means the man who loves us and uh, eventually he returned back to the states he went back to mixed martial arts, and um, and all of his prize-winning bonus money goes to an organization that he started himself, um, calling fight uh, called I think it's called Fight for the Forgotten, and uh, and as he put it in the article, he says, "I'm no longer fighting my inner demons. Now I'm fighting to fulfill God's call in my life. God makes change." And it's not just stories like this of someone who winds up in Africa. He makes change in all of our lives. He's transforming all of our lives. And we're going to see that in today's passage. We're going to look at three kinds of change that God orchestrates or uses in our lives in order to um, bring about change in us for our good and for the good of others. So the first kind of change that God brings about in our lives is that God changes our path. God changes our path. You see this in that story. We're going to see it in Paul's story, a little less dramatic in this story. But many times, God changes our direction. We're going in a particular direction. We have a plan, and it gets blocked. And in the case of this passage that we're looking at today, God is doing the blocking. And God is doing the redirecting. And God does that in our lives. He redirects our path. So how do you do when you have a plan? You know, how do you feel? How do you react, uh, react emotionally? How do you react spiritually? When you have a big plan that you want to accomplish... And there's all kinds of things that block you from being able to accomplish it. Where You find yourself off on some, what feels like a detour or maybe a a dead end. And it was something that you desperately wanted in your life. You may have gotten to the final interview for your dream job, but they chose someone else. You may not have gotten into the school that you wanted to get into. You may not have gotten into the program that you wanted to get into. You may have been out of work. And wound up having to take a job that wasn't a job that you were trained for. wasn't a job that you love doing. Uh, It can be as simple as going on vacation. And it gets hijacked by illness. Or you have a free day where you're finally going to get a little bit caught up in your life. Finally, I have a a day to get caught up because you've been under stress. And instead, a bunch of things break down. And a bunch of relationships blow up. And you're spending the whole day just kind of putting out fires. Some of the detours can feel like dead ends and sometimes they are dead ends, a dead end in a relationship where someone you were hoping to spend your life together with is, it it rejects you or or turns away from you or the relationship breaks down and ends, where your health breaks down and it takes something away from you that you love doing, you can't do it anymore because of your health or maybe because of some bad choices. It, It seems to be haunting you everywhere you go and there's no undoing. Your bad choices. It's just like living with you everywhere you go. So, the Apostle Paul, we're going to be looking at a story from his life in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul faced these kinds of detours and these kinds of breakdowns in relationships, and he faced dead ends uh, in his life. Uh, If you know the Apostle Paul's life, you read the book of Acts, if you read his letters, which we have in the New Testament, the epistles. One of the things that we discover is that Paul spent several years, instead of planting churches, which was what he was called to do and what he was great at, he would oftentimes have to spend years in prison because of his work for the gospel. feeling like just at an absolute dead end. You get to some of his letters at the end of his letters, at the end of his life, and you discover that some of the relationships that he held dear, people who he had done ministry with over the years, some of those relationships had broken down because those people had left the faith, had walked away from Christianity altogether. So um, he experienced a lot of these big misdirections, but he also experienced some smaller ones and that's what we're going to read about in a moment here in Acts chapter 16. So the apostle Paul is down here in this part of the world, and this was known as Asia at the time. This is he's over in uh, eastern Turkey. Well, today is eastern Turkey, and his plan we're going to read is he's he's wanting to work probably along the coast here. And we don't know where he's going, but he said he wanted to do ministry in Asia. So most likely he would have been working his way along the coast. We know he eventually winds up in Ephesus in Asia and has a long ministry there. So maybe that's where he was going. But we're going to read that, that that plan fell through. And uh, he gets redirected. And it's very interesting how he talks about it. Doesn't give us the details of it, but he believes that it's God that's behind it. So pick up in verse 6 of Acts chapter 16 where it says, Paul and his companions travel throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So he wanted to go to Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. So here's, here's what happens. This, this shows the actual route that they went. I mean, it's an approximation of the actual route. But this is where they were trying to get into. Once they weren't allowed into Asia, they went up here and they tried to go this way. And again, it says then the spirit of Jesus stopped them. And so they cross this way and they wind up in Troas. Now that on foot is estimated to take about two to three weeks of a detour. Uh, wondering the whole time, you know, what what are we supposed to do? Where are we, we going? What, what's, going what, what's going on here? He feels like he's off course probably. He doesn't know what's next. And following Jesus uh, doesn't mean that we go through life for even if we're walking very close with Jesus and we're sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it doesn't mean that we're going to go through life with complete clarity about what's next. You know, where we go, what job do I take, what direction do I go When I have two choices. There's nothing in the Bible that promises we'll always have. And what we see is the Apostle Paul experiencing times of wandering and wondering. Wandering, you know, and wondering what is next? Where am I supposed to go? And we experience that as well. So pick up in verse 9 in the story. Because once he gets to Troas, he starts getting some direction that's more clear and yet not exactly clear. So verse 9, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Um, so Macedonia is this region up here, all right? So that's, that's where this man comes from. It doesn't say what they're supposed to do there specifically, but that's what he's, where he's supposed to go um, according to this vision. Pick up at verse 10, after Paul had seen the vision... He got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called him to preach the gospel there. So he has this vision, but he still has to make an estimation and say, what am I supposed to do there? Well, what I do everywhere, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach the gospel there. And so that's where he goes. Now, when we have planned, we've got a plan, and it gets blocked, and we feel like we're wasting our time, a lot of times we feel frustration in our lives. We do. We feel a lot of frustration. And if it's something that we desperately wanted and something that was a big thing in our lives, we will go through time of grief. Uh, We'll go through a time of, of a deep sense of loss because that thing that we had hoped has been blocked, and maybe it's been blocked from our lives for good. And so I'm not telling you that in our lives... Uh, we, should, we should not experience that grief or that we should not feel frustrated, that following God means you're never frustrated when things break down. But the big question is, what will we ultimately do with that block? What will we ultimately do when the thing that we were planning doesn't come through? Some people at that point, if it's a big enough thing, some people shipwreck their faith at that point. Like, if God's not going to give me this thing that I most wanted, then God's not worth Uh, following but people whose faith makes it to the end people with a resilient faith uh, look at things a little bit differently and it's not like they look at it differently the whole of their lives is that eventually they learn to look at things differently so this is something we can learn we can learn how to look at a situation when things don't go our way so that we continue following God and develop that kind of resilient faith and so one of the things that they do people with a resilient faith is they hold loosely to their plans because they know they are not the owners of their of their lives. They know that they are stewards. They're they're to manage it's it's the life that my life belongs to God and therefore I am a steward or a manager of the life that belongs to God. I need to live my life as unto him. We're stewards. We're not owners of our times. Our time and our plans belong to God. And this perfect perspective doesn't come easily to our lives. It's usually hard, you know, learned through difficult times of trying to hold on to things uh, that we shouldn't be holding on to too tightly. Uh, this is a perfect perspective that comes over time to, to say that God owns it. Well, C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, uh, if you haven't heard of Screw Screwtape Letters, it's a fictional book he wrote in 1942. And it's letters from a senior demon to a junior demon. And the whole idea is the senior demon is coaching the junior demon to to make life difficult for this brand new believer. He becomes a believer like by letter two or three. And so what he's trying to do, he's trying to coach this junior demon to help him mess things up for this new follower of Jesus so that the follower of Jesus will be ineffective in his faith or abandoned his faith. And so that's where the coaching is going on. And so I'm going to read to you a little bit uh, a, about um, a, a few portions from this one letter. I think it's letter number 31. Uh, so uh, uh, one of the things that the, the senior demon does is he tells the junior demon, we need, you need to help him think that his time the time that he has, that when he wakes up in the morning that he thinks this day is mine, it belongs to me. He says, because if you, can, if you can help him to have that idea, then you can really derail him when it doesn't go his way. And it's not going to go his way a lot of times. So here's, here's how he explains how to do it. He says, we produce this sense of ownership by teaching them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun my. Okay, my day, right? This is my day. But he says, my, it can have different meanings. You can say, the senior demon said, you can say, uh, these are my boots. You can say, this is my wife. It's a different my, isn't it? You may own your boots. You don't own your wife. All right, so he gives that kind of an example. And then he, uh, he goes on. He says, okay, so we're gonna mess with his idea of my. We have taught men to say, my God. That's <laughs> interesting. He's taking credit that when we say, my God, it's the demons who have taught that. Satan who has taught people to say that. We have taught men to say, my God, in this, sense, in this sense, not very different from my boots, meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services. In other words, if we can just get, and we've worked at this for a long time as demons, and you need to work on this in this young man, you need to get him to say, my God, in this sense, my God who serves me. Who gives me what I want who takes care of my plans um, which is an interesting angle on on all of this so he goes on he says and all the time the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human being about anything not even about their boots we don't really own anything by in the long run either our father meaning Satan or the enemy meaning God will say mine of each thing that exists and especially of each man which is just a brilliant um, idea that CS Lewis Lewis is communicating here that every time we think something is mine actually what we're playing into is Satan and he's the one that's gonna get it all including us because we are not owners We are stewards of our entire lives. Then he says, they will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy, God, says, mine of everything on the pedantic, legalistic ground that he made it. In other words, God says, this belongs to me because I am the creator. He says, that's a little technicality. But our father, Satan hopes in the end to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest said, it's just an interesting angle on when we try to own things what he's basically saying when we say this is ours in the end we're playing into satan's plan when we say god you need to God, you need to take care of all the things that are in the way of my plans, of the things that I want, the things that I desperately want. We're playing right into the hands of Satan. We're letting him win. He's winning the battle, this, this battle of conquest that he's after. All right, we're stewards of our time. We're not owners of our time. Our time and our plans belong to God. God. We shipwreck our faith, we become ineffective in our faith because, uh, when, when things don't go our way and we think that they belong to us and that God should be taking care of us because many times we just live our lives in anger that God didn't do what I expected him to do, what I wanted him to do. Or we, we, we live our lives in a life-defining grief that becomes our whole self, just lost in grief and we become ineffective for god but resilient faith is a faith that faces interruptions and detours and dead ends differently and holds the plans loosely here's a second way that we can have a resilient faith we learn that wherever we find ourselves is a place for mission it's a place for serving god whether it's a detour or a dead end wherever we find ourselves it's a place for serving god i've told a story before from many years ago, one of our staff members sharing at a staff meeting with all of us telling us that she had been diagnosed with cancer. And cancer had killed her husband. And and her goal, she said, and what I want you to pray about is that I could be as effective in ministry as my husband was in his last weeks and months of his life because he led one of his roommates in a hospital to Christ. And she says, I just want to do the same thing. No, she didn't die, and she's still alive today. It's many, many years later, and I don't know if she's cancer-free or in remission, probably cancer-free, but she's doing doing great. But that's how she went into this situation. It was, uh, for all intents and purposes, looked like a dead end. Uh, But uh, instead, she said, okay, in this, what looks like a dead end from a human standpoint, I want to serve Christ. Uh, I want to have... I want want to be able to be on mission for him in everything that I do. So the first kind of change that God brings about that we see in this passage is this change of direction. The Holy Spirit keeps blocking, keeps moving them in a different direction. And then when he gets to Troas, finally, probably three weeks later, uh, he gets a vision. And it's a man in Macedonia. So that's where he goes. The second kind of change is a change in people. God changes people. And this kind of change is a change that that we can maybe sometimes embrace a little bit more easily than a change of plans. Especially when we see that the change in someone is a God change that's coming about in someone's life. Uh, We we can get kind of excited about that. But it's not always so. A a lot of times change in other people really is frustrating for us. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But let's look here at what Paul and his companions do in Macedonia and how people are changed by his his time there. just to show you, there's Troas, and he winds up in Philippi, a city of Macedonia. So we're going to pick up in verse 11. <clears throat> From Troas, we put out the sea, and this, the we comes in there probably because, almost surely, because Luke, the author, has joined them at this point. There's a couple of times that this happens. And so he's on this journey with them. So now this is going to be a firsthand account rather than what he's heard through Paul and others. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the, on the Sabbath, that's a Saturday, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Uh, so there's probably not a synagogue in that area and so what jews would do they would meet um oftentimes by uh by rivers and and have a time of prayer we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there so he encountered a group of women there's a actual river there in philippi It could have been that river there itself one of those listening was a woman from the city of thyatira named lydia a dealer in purple cloth she was a worshiper of god she's a gentile but she believes in the one God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Uh, When she and the members of her household were baptized, possibly in that river, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay in my house, and she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Now, as the story goes, she's following Paul and Silas around, and she keeps prophesying uh, from this evil spirit that's in her and interrupting him and just creating all kinds of problems. So he finally has had it, and he turns around and he casts a demon out of her. And so she is no longer useful for her owners and they get very angry, and they get Paul and Silas, they have connections, they get Paul and Silas arrested, and uh, they take him into the prison, they beat them, which would have been illegal because they were, he was a Roman citizen, um, but he didn't call out his Roman citizenship, but they beat him, they put him in stocks, and there he is, languishing in a prison, and that's uh, an excavation of one jail uh, in Philippi, could be the one, uh, nobody, nobody knows. Um, but during the night, uh, an earthquake happens. So Paul and Silas—they are well. Pick it up in verse 25. About midnight, Saul and Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. So the jailer decides, "Well, I'm going to have my life taken from." <laughs> in a roman way which is going to be horrible so i'm just going to take my own life uh because these people have all escaped and paul says we haven't escaped paul proclaims the gospel to him and then proclaims it to his household and they're baptized and they become followers of jesus so um god is making change he's changing people but we don't always embrace the change in people. We might say, that's a great story, but in our own lives we don't always embrace change in people. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that it costs you when you are God's instrument to bring about change in someone else. So sometimes the way that God is bringing change in other people is through bringing change in your own life that is costing you a lot. Think about Paul and Silas, they're just doing ministry and they get put in prison and they're beaten and they're put in stocks. Uh, This is all to bring about this change in this jailer. God is bringing them through all this in order to bring change in this jailer. And sometimes we don't like what it's gonna cost us in order to bring change in in other people. But sometimes we might not like the change and how it impacts us, the change in someone else, how that change impacts us. So someone gets really on fire for God. And because they're on fire for God, their life is changing. And let's say we're close to them and we are not on fire for God. We're, we're, we're kind of like, we, we want to dampen it down. Hey, 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 you can follow Jesus without being such a fanatic. You can follow Jesus without being quite so on fire for God. You can, you can calm down a little bit. Sometimes our faith is lukewarm and someone else is, is white hot. So where does this happen? Well, it happens when a spouse is white-hot for God, and and that spouse is wanting to invite some of the neighbors uh, into their life, uh, their family's life, uh, because they want to do ministry. They want to be available for their neighbors, and they want to be able to share the gospel for their neighbors, but the other spouse doesn't want that because it's going to inconvenience them. Or maybe one spouse wants to take on a foster child, and the other spouse doesn't because it's going to inconvenience but the reason they're wanting to do it is because god has put that on their hearts or one spouse is wanting to give generously maybe even extravagantly to a ministry and the other spouse is like no because they're holding tightly onto their money you can see how sometimes we don't want to see change in someone else because of the change that it's going to bring in our own lives so i want to ask you the question what about your own story you in your own life are there people around you who are white hot for God growing in God wanting to serve God better but you're holding them back you're, you're, you're trying to dampen their enthusiasm and if that's you would you confess that to God and would you ask Him to fill you with His Holy Spirit to just fill you with His Spirit in a way that just makes your, your life come alive with God will you take steps to grow your relationship with God rather than trying to dampen someone else's one last thing, God changes our perspective. One last change, God changes our perspective. So there's a, there's a prayer that Paul probably prayed before he was a Christian almost every day. Uh, it's a prayer that's still prayed by some today. And uh, we know that it goes back, the rabbis wrote about it in the third century and probably goes back before Paul's time. We don't know that for sure, but probably goes back before Paul's time. And here's what the prayer was. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who has not made me, blah, 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 and finishes with a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Bless you that you haven't made me me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Paul finds himself starting this new church, right, in Philippi, and who are the first three converts that we know of? A Gentile, a slave, and a woman. Now, I'm guessing that it this point already paul's perspective had been changed but if it hadn't been changed before this it's changed now he can't pray that prayer anymore Uh, this is his congregation there Uh, passages like this uh, illustrate uh, it's throughout the whole new testament that the gospel creates a family of diverse people diverse economically ethically uh, racially socially culturally and the change of perspective that God wants to bring in our lives is that we will welcome that diversity, that we will, we will welcome him with open hearts and open arms. God is wanting to bring that change in our hearts. Now, I want to finish with, uh, I want to just show you a two-minute video of Justin Wren telling his own story, and then we'll uh, continue our worship our response together. So,
1: Five years ago, I was a professional athlete. I fought on the ultimate fighter, and I was in the UFC. Looking at me from the outside, you probably would have thought I had it all. In reality, I felt like I had this hole basically in my soul, and I would use any drug I could find to fill that void. And then at my lowest point, I say God loved the hell out of me. He he found me in the pit I was in and showed me the way out of it. That's when I gave up the American dream, and I gave up being a professional athlete. I met my second family here, in the Congo, the Mabuti Pygmies. Uh, They call themselves the Forgotten People. All pygmies are denied their basic human rights. They're victims of hatred. I know this because of Andybo, a -a one-and-a-half-year-old little boy that was denied hospital treatment. The doctor said, we won't waste our medicine on a pygmy animal it's cheaper to just let him die than try to take care of him. I, I saw the blood come out of his ears and, um, and, and uh, I, bur- I buried him, I dug his grave, and, um, and, and that will change you. That was the moment that, that gripped my heart, the moment that I knew that this is my fight too. This is the reason why I came back to the States and why I fight for Bellator. There's so much more at stake now. Every cent I make from a win bonus is going to land, water, and food initiatives for my tribe. And that's why I can't lose. Because before, I was fighting for myself. But now I'm fighting for something bigger than myself. I'm fighting for my family.
0: but uh, I have another short one that'll play just as I tell you what's the last thing that he says uh, in that other video, so you can, you can watch that while I, while I read this. This is how he ends the video that we were just watching. He says, there's so much more at stake now. because He's talking about working for these people. Every cent I make from wind bonuses is going to land, water, and food initiatives for my tribe because getting them land is the way out of slavery for them. And that's why I can't lose, because before I was fighting for myself, but now I'm fighting for something bigger than myself. I'm fighting for my family. God wants to bring that kind of change in us, that we would live our lives towards him, and for him, and with him. And when that happens, it changes everything. So let that be your prayer. Let that be our prayer as we continue our worship and respond to him. Please pray with me.